0: five four three two one zero all engine running Lift off. we have a
1: liftoff
2: i think we're in business okay pills of community um mr phil liqueur is our guest today it's, um it's been a while since uh we We put out an episode, but I'm very happy to be back with a special guy um He is a St John's tutor, a retired tutor um, and we connect over the summers so welcome Phil.
0: Thank you, Billy. We
2: we're just talking about uh religion um and uh you said that you started I guess back in- bef- no sentience around then uh you i mean you you were baptized Catholic, correct
0: That's correct yeah, and
2: then your parents like Episcopalian
0: my parents grew up next to each other in houses next to each other in a small Kansas town uh, my father was French Canadian and Roman Catholic my, yeah my mother came from Scottish Irish people and they were congregationalist and their marriage at the time in that town was regarded as a mixed marriage. Those, really? were, those were communities that normally didn't intermarry. And so they uh, they took a few years to work out what their practice would be. Right. They started in the Roman Catholic Church. I remember being in a Roman Catholic Church with my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was, a, to my memory, a comical episode when I was about three or four years old, which was the end of the Roman Catholic church and the beginning of the Episcopal church for my parents. And they, so they moved down the street to the Episcopal church. And that's really where my upbringing took place from about age three or four on through when I left for school, left for college, left for college.
2: Good though. All right. So you stayed, your, your upbringing was, Episcopalian, right? And then until you went off to college, Colorado State?
0: No, I went to Colorado. Colorado College, yes. In Colorado Springs. Yes, sir. At the time was a conventional small-town liberal arts school being shaken by the scruff of its neck by a young new president who was insisting that it be— uh, become a much more modern institution than the one that he had started with. And so he took the faculty every weekend on uh, retreats to talk about Marx and uh, he- Marx and Freud right. and Darwin. Okay, And that's where the mentality of that particular faculty started. So the headmaster, the head of the school at the time
2: wanted to change the he the was trajectory a, of the school a, bit.
0: a wonderful man named Louis Benazet.
2: Right, and there seems to be a connection between Colorado College and St. John's. Is that right?
0: I think that there is. When St. Yeah. John's started uh, its expansion campus here in Santa Fe in 1964, the nearest uh, the nearest institution that I guess you could say was on somewhat the same project. Was Colorado College, and that's how I found out about St. John's. Uh, I didn't know. I graduated in 1966. Right. It started here in 1964, but I was unaware of it. But when I uh, later on, a couple of years later, I was over in England studying, mm-hmm. and my mentor from from Colorado College wrote me a letter about St. John's and said he thought it was a place that I should apply to when the time came to apply because and these to me were prophetic words uh because i would not be punished for having more than one serious interest (sighs) and uh, and he already was aware of my disinclination to become a yeah a specialist in anything too early in my life but uh, those words were very helpful uh, very helpful guidance for me when the time came to try to figure out where I wanted to uh, land, put my mature energies.
2: Do you are? Right, so now that you're a little later in life, a little later in life, um, do you have a, a, a specificity or an interest in a certain area?
0: You know, it's, it's interesting. I uh, when I applied to St. John's and this would be back in 1970, 71. Yeah. And I started here in Santa Fe in 1972. Mm -hmm. I remember that my application had an essay in it that I had written Mm -hmm. on uh, Hamlet and Ophelia. Mm -hmm. It had a a long, detailed piece in it that I had written about irrational numbers, about Mm -hmm. number theory. What are irrational numbers? Mm -hmm. Why, Why do they occur? It had uh, dozen poems in it that I had written. And I think there was, and it had also, now I remember, yeah, it had also, uh, an essay that I had written on the structure of the genetic code. Mm -hmm. And I have not been able to narrow it down since then. I started with those interests and Mm -hmm. all of those things are still of interest to me. I think I've, gained some ground i think i've made some advances on those interests but that's a fair that's a fair sample of the uh, problem that i've had in my life which is it's not a problem it's really a, a wonderful experience to have more than one serious interest
2: yeah those fields um so
0: you've you've gained
2: further insight into those fields I think and, so yeah. I think
0: so and over the years uh, you mentioned the theme of religion when yeah. we started out over mm-hmm. the years that really has been the overarching uh, the overarching coherence of all of those things how how do they all fit together into a whole or at least a co- uh, coherent, Consciousness and the and religion
2: would be the whole. All those things can be found in religion. Are you saying?
0: Um, I think that all of them are aspects of consciousness Mm -hmm. with special conditions on each one, and that through them you can you can get beyond what your what your obvious contents and structure of your consciousness might be you working more than one angle like that you can you can get something like parallax where you can see beyond each of those subjects by by bringing them
2: into relation with each other (laughs) so you you kind of use their powers and put them together to create a larger insight
0: or or a deeper insight. No. Yeah, that's what I'm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. You allow, allow for them to like sort of to team up to better understand
0: successful or not. That's my strategy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Is to not not be uh, imprisoned. If I could use a more yeah. dramatic word than than uh, often is used, not to be imprisoned in any one. Specialty or any particular uh, lexicon, if I could put it that yeah. way, any particular set of terms.
2: Yeah, um, makes sense, and then that's sort of the the Saint John's essence.
0: One, one of the really interesting moments in my life, I was, I was after I finished my studies in England. I was working in a bookstore in Germany, mm-hmm. and a person came in one afternoon to the bookstore and said, there's a busload of school teachers that are going to go on a a month-long expedition to Prague. This was in the spring of 1968 during the what was called the Prague Spring. There was the first liberalization of the the Soviet uh, oppression Mm -hmm. in in Mm -hmm. Czechoslovakia. Right. There's, there's a, somebody pulled out at the last minute. Does anybody want to go? I think it cost $40. <laughs> and so I walked out. For the, the trip? For the trip. So <sighs> I, I walked out of the bookstore, uh, went home and got a couple changes of clothes, came back, hopped on the bus and went to, uh, got on the train uh, and went to Prague. When, the reason I brought that story up was, there were many things on that trip. There were hugely important to me. I can talk about another one in a few minutes, but the first thing that happened was that we sitting. I was sitting on this train in a compartment mm-hmm. with five other passengers. As that's the way these European trains are built, they're mm-hmm. six-person compartments mm-hmm. with a little hallway on the side of the car. And I was the sixth person of. A, there were five people in there talking to each other. And they were talking to each other in German, and I could understand every word. And right when we crossed the border into Czechoslovakia, seamlessly and as it seemed to me in the middle of a sentence, they switched into Czech, and they were speaking to each other in Czech. And uh, and from one second to the next, I could understand nothing. Uh, they were having the same conversation. You couldn't tell by looking at their faces right. or listening to their tone of voice that. That anything major had changed for them, but they had switched languages on a on on a dime, and I had thought about I thought about that later on about what a what a wonderful advantage that would be to have real fluency in more than one language, not mm-hmm. just to know a couple languages, mm-hmm. but to to be able to move without even uh, without even shifting. Blinking
2: an eye. It's just an an
0: instinctual shift. But the other, uh, as long as I'm talking about that uh, little trip, which, again, is 1968. I was 24 years old. There were many things that happened on the trip, but one of them... Was that that was the first synagogue that I was ever in in my life? There was a there's a synagogue in Prague called uh, the Old New Shul or the Pincus Synagogue, and it had been spared by the Nazis. It had been preserved by the Nazis uh, because they wanted to make a museum of it. Uh, of a people that didn't exist anymore. They envisioned after after the Second <laughs> yeah. world War that there wouldn't be any more yeah. Jews mm-hmm. and and so the synagogue was there in perfect condition mm-hmm. and off to the side of it was a, a a newly built structure, basically a it was probably a room that was maybe 60 or 70 feet long on one wall, and maybe 15 feet wide. And every every place on the wall had a name on it. Right. The names were, names, birth date, and death date. The names were like Sarah, 1898, 1941. David, 1935, 1941. Ephraim, 1941. They were born at all different dates and they all died in nineteen forty one. And those <laughs> those were the eighty thousand Jews that were that were captured in Prague, put on trains, and sent to Theresianstadt, which was the concentration camp that the Prague Jews went to and were murdered there. And I had read a little bit about that in school, and I had been with people that knew much more about it than I did, um, but that was the moment for me when what had happened in the world became palpable, became, it became a fact as opposed to a piece of information. That I, that I knew, mm-hmm. and it really stopped me in my tracks, uh, not just literally, but um, I can remember standing in that room and every which way I looked, I would see a name with a birth date and a death date. The other thing that happened to me, if you want to hear this other prog mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. because it matters. Please. Uh, in my own life, in my own development, was one night? It was a beautiful spring night, and I decided to go down to the main square in Prague, which was named after King Wenceslas. The in German, the Wenzelplatz was the name of this place. It's so that Christmas Carol, you know. The Good King Wenceslas. Yes, that was that one. It
2: was one of my favorite Christmas carols growing up. And the 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 melody of it is and,
0: powerful, and the main the main. Uh, Square in Prague is named after him. Mm-hmm. So I, I, got, I went down there, and I saw this line of people, four abreast, and the line stretched for hundreds and hundreds of yards. There were four, 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 hundreds of yards. And so I thought, well, I'll go up to the beginning of this line and see what they're all lined up for. And what they were all lined up for was they were receiving a... Uh, a newspaper, a one piece of newsprint, just just like a, your local paper, but only only one page page of newsprint folded together. So there were four pages. And this was the first newspaper that they had ever received in their lifetimes that wasn't published by the government. Mm-hmm. This was an independent source of news, and they were desperate to hear it, <coughs> written by one of their own. Written by somebody who didn't, who wasn't telling Mm -hmm. them what the government wanted them to hear. Yeah, and so that was I. I I appreciated the freedom of the press Mm -hmm. (laughs) from that moment on. I had never thought about it much before because we have newspapers in a very. Mm -hmm. We don't even think about it. Uh, So I. I was struck by that and i thought well you know i'm going to go down to one of these wine cellars and i'm just going to go down and have a glass of wine and it was a literally a wine cellar it was down below the level of the street so i I went down and i found i found one and i um, walked through the gateway and i climbed down the steps i would say eight or ten steps down to the cellar level yeah and uh, it was full of people and full of excitement. And as soon as I appeared in the doorway, the place was completely silent, completely silent. You could hear a pin drop. Yeah. And then one by one, every person in that room came up and embraced me and kissed me on the cheeks. And I had no idea what was going on. And finally, uh, there were about hundred and fifty, hundred and seventy people in that room. Mm-hmm. And finally, w- one of the men who came up and embraced me, um, and kissed my cheeks, said something in English. And so that was the. So I asked him, "I said, what's going on?" Mm-hmm. And he said to me, "He was our leader too." And that was how I found out that Martin Luther King, Jr. had been assassinated. Oh my God! Um, it was that night, in that moment. And again, I had no—I knew about Martin Luther King. I—I I was about his work, about the voting rights issues, the things that he'd been involved in. But yeah. it had a certain. And again, it was somewhere else in America. It didn't really affect me that much. <clears throat> But after that moment, and I realized how hugely, hugely important he was—not just to us in America, but to people all through the Soviet bloc mm-hmm. who desperately wanted to have to be free mm-hmm. of, of, the, of of official oppression. Mm-hmm. And so those were several turning points that happened to me on that three-week three, three week trip to Prague. How do they know? How did? So you came down the
2: stairs into the wine cellar, right? And was they, it anyone they, who came? Did they know you were, they, they knew
0: you were American somehow? They, they, could, they knew I was American yeah. because I had clothes on okay. that you can only get in America. I understand. That, that they... Uh, you could just look at yeah, me, and yeah. it was not a it was not a mystery. Yeah, that
2: sense. Yeah, you have that sense. Um, that's a cool story.
0: I won't tell you any more how, Prague, how long? Prague stories, but there are many more. So
2: when you're in Prague, the folks there, um, must have been uh rejoicing or in joy
0: that they're they were they their were, first uh, taste of freedom. They were exhilarated, hmm. but. Every conversation I had with somebody in Prague, with a with a Czech person, mm-hmm. during that conversation, even we were outside, we we're inside, wherever we were, every few moments that person would look over his or her shoulder, yeah, to make sure that nobody was listening to us. and that was a habit that they all right. had from from before the liberalization. Uh, there were many people that told me we have never been able to speak like this before, but they weren't quite used to it. They weren't really sure that nobody was listening and that they wouldn't be getting in trouble. Yeah. That's probably a habit that it took a while for them to break if, if ever, you know? Yes. Uh, So, so, so far on this trip to Prague, we have language at the border. We have religion. We have politics. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, what was it? What
2: was it? Do you think that caused for the folks in the train to instantly switch over to uh, check?
0: They crossed the border, they,
2: and then they, they, they know it. And I know that, but
0: they, they how
2: just, is it? How is it that ingrained and instinctual? Because they're coming into a country that was once ruled over by another force. Yeah. Uh, so no, they,
0: they just they were in Germany. They spoke German, and then when they saw that we crossed the border, um, is it a
2: matter of etiquette
0: i you know I don't know it was so unselfconscious it it just happened uh um, it it happened without any sense of adjustment i understand but yeah
2: and it's like in here in the states you go from state to state and well I'll speak uh, uh english um and uh let always think about the United states it's like we're going all these different every state has its own sort of identity in a way there's nuances to every state but we all speak the same
0: language and well, over the, there you can see it a little bit in America my my wife is from uh, Manhattan from New York City right and when we're here in Santa Fe um she, she when the words come up she says water and chocolate and um and when we're in New York together, without her, without any, yeah, yeah. any just an ordinary conversation, she says "wada," chocolate, and cross town bus, <laughs> and and it just switches over to the local inflection.
2: That that that's the that's probably the same effect.
0: It, I think it is, except it was much more dramatic. Yeah, not just go from. A change in pronunciation but to a change in which language you're speaking
2: my dad said one time that billy you talk differently around different people i was like yeah and i thought about at the time i thought that was like a bad thing you know but i think it's almost a a sign of empathy it's like i'm gonna be one of you that's right you know i want to i want to fit i want to yeah
0: i want to talk in a way that you can hear me
2: that i can be embraced because uh you know, I like, I like you, and uh, it's like walking to somebody's house and like taking off your shoes, as a sound of of respect or whatever, because it's house house rules, you know. Cool. So, um, when you when, that synagogue in Prague, um, and then I guess take us from there. You're you're studying in England, right?
0: Oxford. I studied at Oxford for yeah. th- for three more years after my undergraduate work in in America um and
2: then they point you towards St. John's
0: then I went to Germany uh, there was I almost stayed in Germany it was um it was very interesting place for me to be yeah in, and I had gotten to the point where I was was uh as fluent in German as in English mm mm-hmm. And uh, one day I actually I was driving down the road from where I lived in Germany to uh, in Göttingen to uh, s- Southern Germany to Freiburg uh, to meet my mentor from Colorado College, Glenn Gray, who was over there working with Heidegger <laughs> and on the way down there, I, I was a passenger in a convertible, an Alfa Romeo convertible that was being driven by a friend of mine from Oxford. Mm-hmm. He'd come by, Gertingen picked me up, and we were driving faster than I had ever driven in my life. I remember looking one time at the speedometer and seeing that we were going 112 miles an hour at one point. Top down top down and uh so i i was just holding on for dear life but then we got into the black forest and he's going around these hairpin curves Mm -hmm. not that fast but pretty fast and boom it's uh he we got in a wreck he hit a this peugeot right in the side yeah front of the alfa romeo got all crumpled in Mm. and i i got a little bit cut up not badly but my i had a tear in my coat and my little Mm-hmm. A little cut on my forehead, and and so we dealt with the police. We got the the front bent front fender kind of pried out mm-hmm. again, and we crippled on down the road. Mm-hmm. And we were going through these beautiful meadows, and I smelled the hay. I smelled the hay being cut. And at that moment, it was clear to me that I was coming back to America. It was. Uh, I grew up in uh, rural Colorado. Huh and and when that smell when i smelled the fresh hay yeah uh i thought okay that's the answer to you that miss home that's the answer to that yeah. question yeah so later that interesting. day later that day as it turned out so i i went to the uh, the uh, address i had for dr gray which was in uh w- which was uh an apartment in somebody's house in freiburg I went and knocked on the door, and I introduced myself in German to this woman who came to the door and said, "Yeah, ich suche Herr Professor Dr. Grey aus Amerika." And she said, "Oh, he," she said, "He's not here. He's downtown at the Rappin Hotel." And I thought that she meant that. Oh, he's not staying here anymore. He's actually changed. He's got a room down at the Rappin Hotel. Yeah. So I went down there looking for him. So I walked into the desk of the Rappin Hotel, the front desk, and I said the same thing, you know, hair Professor, Dr. Gray, and so on and so forth. And and the man looked at me, and I must have looked like a Rasputin with my torn coat and my, mm-hmm. my, my uh, I was pretty ragged shape. Mm-hmm. But he looked at me, and he came out from behind the desk, and he took me by the arm, down this one corridor, down another corridor, through a door at the end, and put and injected me into this room. And in this room, there's a there are several people. Uh, there's a little table like a U-shaped table set up. Mm-hmm. And at the head of the table is none other than Martin Heidegger. Hmm. And on Heidegger's left, my right, is his wife Elfrida. And on Heidegger's right, my left is Hannah Arendt. His erstwhile mistress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And next to Hannah Arendt is Glenn on the part of the table that were the legs of the U uh, Glenn Gray and one of his daughters. Mm-hmm. And sitting next to Elfrida is Glenn's wife Ursula and then his other daughter. And they looked at me being put into this room. I had no idea that what you're walking into, what I was walking into, and and Glenn looked at me and he said, "Phil, what are you doing here?" <laughs> and I said, "I had, I was just looking for you." And the, and they were very generous. Everybody stood up. He said, "Come in, come in. I want you to meet everybody." <laughs> and I think that it had been a very, very icy occasion until the moment that I came in the room. My sense was that they were not having a good time. Huh? And. That you can you can this was a very delicate situation with Heidegger with his wife on the one hand and the woman that had been his mistress on the other hand and this was the first time that Heidegger and Hannah Arendt had been brought back together in decades hmm. so uh, I think they were glad for a little comic relief They brought me in and yeah Glenn introduced me to everybody including Heidegger and I had met Hannah Arendt before and we had we had a little conversation he was kind enough to ask me what i was doing and what i was studying and yeah but i got i i was talking to him just about the same distance that you are mm-hmm. from me like 2 or 3 feet away and mm-hmm. got a sense of him and i was so glad to get out of that room <laughs> uh with my anything intact after yeah. after i made it out i couldn't believe i was in there but anyway that was that was <laughs>
2: it's one of those things you don't want to mess it up you don't want to say the wrong
0: thing uh, i had i was so luckily i had no opportunity before it happened to worry about
2: it yes that's a good, that's a good point yeah. <laughs> so, no expectations so
0: it was all just top of my head and good top of everybody else's head. what but was your impression my impression was that he was a very intense and charismatic interesting man is that's the uh that's the word that I would use. He must have been about 80 years old when I met him. Yeah. Very dark eyes, very, very deep eyes. And one saw that he could, he could, uh, cast a spell, yeah. if I could put it that yeah. way, on people that he was talking to. Mm-hmm. In trance. Mm hmm. Um,
2: do, uh, do you find yourself, uh, I don't know. If, do you enjoy reading Heidegger?
0: No. <laughs> uh, uh, Glenn uh, was very interested, uh, encouraging me to become a translator of Heidegger. Mm-hmm. The, he, Glenn was in charge of the translations of Heidegger into English mm-hmm. with, under Harper Rowe. Mm-hmm. And the, Heidegger's main book, Being in Time, had been translated, but by two men who, who didn't speak German. Mm -hmm. for one thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it had been so the translation was very problematic how do you do that how do you not speak german and translate german to english i have no idea but uh glenn wanted that book retranslated and so i did translate part of it and at one point i realized that that's not who i was i wasn't a heidegger translator and i wasn't going to be a um in any sense, a follower of Heidegger, I uh, I sense that I I probably could not have told you why back in my twenties, but I sense that there was something, some difference or some distance between myself and Heidegger, and that, however hugely important he might be to many people, he would not be uh, one of my oracles. Something.
2: That's hard to put into words, something in your gut spoke to you mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. is this
0: this is not jiving yeah, that's right I just and you thought, gotta listen to that. I just thought I'm intuition, that's not who I am so <laughs> when I didn't know who I was, but I knew it wasn't
2: that <laughs> when you I, I would you tell me um but when you start to translate um, a text right uh, whether it's German or Greek or what, or what have you, um, you must really begin to understand. Um, the brain or the soul of the person who wrote it. I think, I think,
0: and it can be dangerous. I think one tries to do that. Uh, I think you, uh, it's unavoidable when you translate that there'll be aspects, if not a view, at least of the language that you're translating into, there'll be features of the language that you have to, um, you have to allow to exist and the object is to have them not obscure the text too much. Mm-hmm. But it's a very difficult business, but it might be that that's, that that's always what's going on. That even between people that speak English with each other, they're translating mm-hmm. to themselves what the other person said. And sometimes they get it more accurately, sometimes less accurately. That's a, that's a
2: great point. It's like language is, uh, it's it's the best we have i guess to, uh, with respect to certain things it's, it's certainly not a, a a perfect means of communication
0: no uh, but it's what we have yeah and it seems to me we better take care of it and we better try to use it responsibly and carefully yeah and realize that it can there's, I don't think there's any such thing as neutral language, that, that it language always makes the situation worse or better. Um, but I don't think it's possible to, <laughs> to really speak and have things be unchanged. Right. Why is that, I wonder? Maybe
2: it's just that uh, the human mind always goes to, I don't know, tries to interpret it, interpret what is said, uh someone might interpret it as like in a positive way like, and say a negative way but it's never neutral.
0: We're always sort of curious in that regard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can can you think of some something that somebody said to you that made a real difference? Yeah. Yeah. Um either way. Yes.
2: Yes. You you're saying that all words Statements and so are, are charged either a little all, bit positive think, or a little bit negative.
0: Yeah, I think all languages like that. Are, at big important moments, yeah. you can see it more. But it's like those people that measure earthquakes. They have, they have you, feelings. Yeah, you say, look, there. At times there are big earthquakes, but there are all there's these little little earthquakes that are going on all the time, uh, every moment. There's the earth, the surface of the earth is yeah, moving, is vibrating. Yeah. But we don't pick that up normally, yeah. Unless you are an architect uh, building a building that has to sit on those foundations, you don't worry about it too much. But uh, and then a big earthquake happens, and people think, "Oh, well, it wasn't an earthquake, and now it is." But in actual fact, it's going on all the time. So there's uh, there's never there's never nothing going on. There's nothing (laughs) never never, nothing nothing going on. Yes, I think I would sign on to that.
2: (sighs) everything's dynamic um, that's like the uh, can't step in the same river twice um, her, uh, no, uh, Heraclitus right? That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So talk to me about um, religion. So when when was it that you're like you're Episcopalian and uh, was it when you were in Prague when you saw that synagogue did that light something in you I was like it, I want to convert perhaps to No, I would,
0: I wouldn't have known it at the time how important that experience Interesting. was going to be yeah um i was 24 years old um it took it, it took um going from that time in my life to when i became a convert to the jewish tradition uh to judaism it um took 21 more years um the, the first lecture that I gave at St. John's College in 1975 was on the Gospel of John, on the, in the first 12 verses of the 20th, 20th chapter, which is an account of the resurrection. And one of the strange results of that lecture, I think I had some insights into how that passage was written. And one of the strange insights I had was because I could see how it was written, how it was made, as it, as it were, where it came from. It's over time ceased to be compelling for me. Um, and that I, I, um, I think what I have always been looking for is is language that a human being could not have made up, language that a human being might have spoken, but could not have come from human faculties. And one of the first poems I wrote, uh, the first lo- words in it are, Lord, I would stand at such a door. You, th- there's a part in the Gospels where it says, Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And it was on that. And the, but the way the poem ended up was uh, with the lines, Dimly in a childhood scene, There were dry lips murmuring a distant tale To lull my sense away. How a stone struck absurd babbles forth an unfamiliar word. Um, that, obviously, that is uh, an allusion to that passage in the 17th chapter of Exodus where Moses strikes a stone and water comes out of it. Mm -hmm. And that, even at that early time in my life, I must have been about 28 when I wrote that, Mm -hmm. and not yet really realizing where I would be going. But even at that time, I think that what I was hoping to find at some point was something like water coming out of a rock. Was was language coming out of a human being that a human being could not have made up? Mm-hmm. And and that's another way of saying that is prophecy instead of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not against human wisdom. I'm, I've, I've spent my life studying these books of human wisdom. But there's another way of speech that I think is beyond wisdom that we don't have access to as human beings. We can, we can hear it and we can know that it has a source. That's not a merely human source, but we can't
2: reiterate it. We can't put what we hear from the non-human source into words
0: accurately. Some people can, uh, some, and they are not, I don't think it's a democratic uh, trait Yeah, that everybody can do that. And I don't think many people can do that. There's hardly any people can. And they are the people that we call prophets. Yeah. And that's a different category than philosophers.
2: Yeah. Um, are there prophets now, present-day present prophets
0: in your <laughs> mind? Living today?
2: I don't, yeah well the our our interpretation when we hear prophet we think of the old testament right I do
0: yeah I do the last prophet that i would that i would um, that i acknowledge as a prophet is esther and that's the last that's the last book in the Hebrew Bible mm-hmm. the book of esther mm-hmm. it's a uh, It's unlike any other thing in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. Most distinctively, the name of God does not appear in the book of Esther. It's the only book in the Hebrew Bible that that is true of. And the other thing that sets it off from all the other books, one of the other things, is that it's written by a woman. It's the only book in either of the Testaments that's written by a woman. And from the, in the Jewish tradition, it's the only book that was written um, outside of the land of Israel. It's, it's, not, it's, not, a, it's not a Jerusalem-centric book. It's, it was actually written in the Persian court mm-hmm. in, in, during about the time of the uh, Persian invasion of Greece.
2: Hmm. Um. When you so what was it? What was it about uh, Book of Esther? You say that, that she, correct, was the last prophet that you think um, that you know of, correct?
0: That in in my little repertory of uh, things I'm acquainted with, I would say she's the last one. Yeah. What What about her writings? And uh, just to give a little more credibility yeah. to my my personal opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was clear in the rabbinical discussion uh, recorded in the Talmud that when Esther was accepted into the Jewish canon, the canon of the of the Old Testament, uh, that it was accepted with the understanding that there would be no more additions. This was the last book. This was the final book,
2: and that was. Three uh, three hundred BC,
0: uh, uh, four hundred BC. It, it was uh, probably written about about the between uh, Mar- the battle of Marathon and the battle of Salamis in the Greek war against Persia. It was probably written about four eighty five, yeah, before the common era, and then only about five or six hundred years later was it accepted into the canon. The canon. And that was after long debate about huh. whether, whether this really was anything or not. And they determined that it was on the grounds that
2: it was prophetic, you think?
0: Yeah. They, uh, that Esther became... There's a list of all of the prophets and then there's seven women prophets and yeah. she, she's the seventh. Mm-hmm. But she's the only one that actually wrote a book. Uh, there, if you think about it, Billy, she's the only woman that is that we know for sure in the accounts if you read all of the Hebrew books in the in the Hebrew Bible she's the only woman that we know could read and write we know she could read and the language that she read was Persian and we know she could write because at the end of the book it says she wrote this book um what about the book is prophetic? Um, no, I'm. In your going, opinion, I'm going or... to do my best with that question. Okay, but it's not. It's not something that can be said in two or three sentences. Okay, um, it's big on my mind right now because I've been working through these months. Some of the pandemic months, I've been working through them, but really on on the Book of Esther for about 30 years now. And there's, in the ninth chapter of the Book of Esther, there's a scribal oddity. And it's not subtle. It's, it's you look at it. And you see this is not written like the rest of the book. And it's always been that way. Uh, it's even commented on in the Talmud, which was about three or 400 A.C.E. after, you know, after mm-hmm. the Common Era. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those scribal oddities are, are mentioned, but no one has ever known what they meant. But I think that we know now what they mean, and it's astonishing what they mean um but rather than me trying to say it in in a conversational way i'll, I'll take this opportunity to to uh, mention at least uh, that i'm in fact going to give a lecture on this very question on July 28th at the cool conference. At the college, and if you don't happen to be at the college and are interested in this lecture, uh, it will be streamed. So there'll there'll be a Zoom version of cool. it that you could hear. So anyway, it's, so that's a that's a tease right there.
2: It's
0: a, <laughs> it's a, it's a tease, yeah.
2: <laughs> we well, need more space to, to but act, ha- I flesh out the yeah, how it, you really feel about to, it.
0: It has to do with something that you or anybody could see. By actually looking at the at the book you know at the Hebrew version of the book so the, e- whether or not you sp- yeah. understand Hebrew you can see what's being talked about
2: yeah, see scribal, scribal oddity meaning that the, the, the language up to chapter nine is one sort of direction and then it changes a little bit of direction it sounds like it's somebody else maybe it, it
0: looks just like a, a Torah scroll mm-hmm. just like the language of a Torah scroll mm-hmm. and then there's a brief passage it's not the whole chapter. There's a brief passage um, that is written in a very different way, and then it resumes the the original ways. Then it resumes the normal way of writing. And it's it's just a list of names. They're Persian names. And then in those names, three of the letters are tiny, tiny little letters relative to the rest of it. One of them is a huge letter relative (laughs) to the rest of it. So anyway, no, uh, I, what that means mm-hmm. is, is not original to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I overheard two old men talking about this back about 1990, 1991. I just overheard them. They weren't talking to me. I was just sitting there listening mm-hmm. to them. They were talking to each other about what it meant. And I have never been able to forget what they said to each other and I checked it out and I checked everything I could about it out and it all it all did check out Mm -hmm. and um, so anyway uh, that's I've been thinking about it ever since then about whether I could walk away from it or not and in my particular case it turns out I can't and some people do some people don't interesting stuck with you yep
2: why you're just curious, why? Yeah, I know. I mean, by, I, by nature, I would say that if I, you're if you're a Johnny, you're curious. I, but,
0: I can tell you I can tell you one thing about the Book of Esther before this moment happens yeah. in the book. At one moment, it's you know, it takes place in the Persian court. Yeah, and she is has won the beauty contest and has become the replacement wife for the Persian king who is Xerxes same Xerxes that is in the Battle of Salamis. And and she says to... There's a plot in there to kill all the Jews. And so she's she goes to Xerxes and she pleads for her own life mm-hmm. and for the life of her people. And then she says, if it had only we have been sold to be killed and to be annihilated if we had only been sold to be enslaved men being men slaves women being women slaves she said i would not have i would have remained silent but but our very existence is now in question and that's an interesting statement because the main narrative of judaism is the liberation is liberation yeah from egypt getting free of egypt it's, and she says you know there's something deeper going on besides liberation um something if if we had been re-enslaved we we could have Dealt with that. We could have survived that, but this is beyond. This is deeper than that. This is our very existence and death. Yeah, death and of of me personally, and of all the Jewish people. It, um, and at that moment, everything changes in the in the book Uh, when she and there. There, you can see that she's. She she may not be speaking prophetically yet at that moment in the book, but she's speaking from a deeper motive than the motive of personal and political liberty. She she discounts that. She said this: if it was just that, we would deal with it without troubling you. But it's it's deeper than that. So anyway,
2: yeah, yeah, um, that's different than Exodus,
0: it's, right? It's yeah, the whole the whole. Torah project, at least in the first five books, are uh, getting free. Freedom is more um, of of slavery, and and eventually, of freeing your own slaves. Yeah.
2: So the the idea—I'd rather um, uh, live or die on my—I'd rather die on my knees than live on. I'd rather. uh, You know the phrase I'm talking about. Um, I don't.
0: No. Give me a minute. Um, I'd rather die. And, I'd rather live, um, live on my knees and die on my feet or something like that. That's what Esther is saying.
2: That's just, that, but it's the opposite. It's basically, it's I, um, <clears throat> I'd rather die or I, I'd rather if I'm enslaved, I'd rather not be in, in existence. Okay. Um, I would, I would choose for death if I didn't have freedom.
0: Yeah, and she and then she's
2: saying the opposite.
0: She's saying the opposite of that. She says freedom is very important, but it's not the ultimate important thing. That people who are not free, um, still deeply desire to exist. Even, yeah, even if they're not free.
2: What is it? Do you think uh, is it like an internal hope, or is it, or is it the embrace of suffering?
0: I I don't think. It's anything that we can easily say. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it translates into a psychological motive where we could we could move it in and say, well, you know, there's certain psychological things that everybody or almost everybody has in common. I'm not sure that it's expressible in any other way than simply I exist and I want to exist. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: And it's um, it's almost a spiritual. It, it go it goes beyond maybe reason.
0: It's a it it does I think it's a, or it goes beyond logic. Yeah, reason in that sense. Yeah, and enters into what I guess in modern times they would call it's um, it, it's it's not it. it moves from the from essential language to existential language I understand it that the existential question becomes the deeper question is it something that you can
2: only um, experience by experiencing that circumstance of slavery
0: or the threat the threat to one's existence do you it's, think it seems like it doesn't come up until your existence is threatened? You, uh, how how come uh,
2: the folks of is, do you think that is the way that was Esther aware of the stories of Exodus?
0: I would have to say yes, although yeah. although there's no allusion to them uh, in the Book of Esther as such, except. The book translates a couple Persian words into Hebrew words. Yeah. One example would be, and, and it's, it does this twice. It does this in the third chapter and again back in the ninth or tenth chapter. It's talking about um, the word for dice or or a lot that you cast. Mm-hmm. And the word is poor. It, the Persian word is P U R, poor. And, um, and the text says poor. Hu uh, ha goral, poor, that is, means goral in Hebrew. And goral is the lot that was cast on, the, on Yom Kippur to distinguish the scapegoat from the sacrificial goat, from it to distinguish one destiny from another mm-hmm. destiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, that turns out to be the word poor, turns out to be the word. Of the holiday that's based on the Book of Esther, which is Purim, and it is—it's—it's uh, it's a very odd and very unusual holiday. Uh, it's the last one in the Hebrew calendar, starting from Exodus, going or starting from Passover, going around back to Passover. But anyway, uh, there are two or three words like that that are translated to exact meanings in the in the first five books of the Torah and so you'd so you'd have to say on the basis of that yes that the the Esther that wrote this book was was very precisely aware of those books but it's not but the narrative is a different kind of it's a different narrative it doesn't take place going to Israel it takes place after being having been in Israel and then being pushed out into the rest of the world do you think that
2: context of seeing um the Jews enslaved in Egypt and getting their freedom, you know, the line that I was thinking of is I'd rather um die on my feet than live on my knees. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Um, do you think that context, I don't know if the word influenced her. Do you think she, okay, I think she had some sort of rapture that, or something spoke to her and uh, is outside of her logic or reason that allowed her to profess that, um, Hey, existence is supreme.
0: I think so. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, that, that, moment isn't yet the prophetic moment in Esther I yeah. think the, the prophetic moment is later on where those okay. where there's that scribal mm-hmm. uh, small big small scribal unconformity mm-hmm. and what what is actually going on there yeah but uh, but it's a different sense of of what the what you might call the substance of prophecy or the subject matter of prophecy mm-hmm. is it's uh, it's no longer justice. Although yeah. although that's yeah. although human that, justice. Although that's not irrelevant. It's not irrelevant in the book of Esther, but it's also not the ultimate thing. Human justice, you mean? Yes. By law. Or even even uh, the... traditional Jewish justice, you know mm-hmm. living mm-hmm. in accordance with the law. Mm-hmm. But that's no longer it's that's still important. It's not the most important thing.
2: All right. Uh, Interesting idea. Um, So I read a uh, interview with you on the Johnny chair, which is like, I don't know if it's still around, but I guess it's the St. John's maybe newspaper or or forum, you know, and this is back in 2017. And you said your favorite book is Exodus. It is. What about Esther?
0: It's a close call.
2: (laughs) Has it? Back then, did you feel the same way about Esther, or is, have, has Esther Esther's
0: gained been gained more light recently? Esther's been on the back burner for me for as long as Exodus. Yeah. Has. I think the the I think the Book of Exodus was something that I was exposed to as a young child, yeah as a young child, and yeah. it was always much more um, prominent for me than the Book of Esther. Um, but and I'm not sure that I had even Read or at least tried to read carefully the book of Esther before 30 years ago when I heard overheard that conversation that mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. mentioning to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, right now, that's an interesting question. I, I guess I would have to say this week, today, the next couple of weeks, yeah. I'd have to answer the book of Esther. Yeah, would have, uh, would have front burner barely edged out yeah, the yeah. book of Exodus. Yeah. um, so
2: then when when did you if you don't mind me, when did you convert to so you converted
0: like 40s something like that i let's see how old was i i was um um 46 when i became a convert
2: so what was it, what is it about judaism versus so you convert from christianity right or from episcopalian or no you're a baptized catholic
0: yeah, so exactly. basically from catholic to judaism well, or, but raised up in the Episcopal tradition, you know, so that was really what I had most mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. of. Um, I, I guess it goes back to trying to find language, trying to find language that a human being could not have made up, that wasn't really... Mm-hmm. Um, uh no matter how exalted wasn't simply a form of human wisdom that that the ultimate authority wasn't uh wasn't the human mind but something that the human mind could under very special moments become transparent to and I, as you know this last week I've been up to my eyeballs, not in religion, but in uh, pre-telescopic astronomy. And yeah. One of the things that was really exciting for me, uh, and I'd never done it before, uh, was working through a couple propositions in Kepler's optics, where the, the, the question is, no, nobody has really understood how a pinhole works. Uh, like a pinhole camera, Mm -hmm. and in fact, all cameras are pinhole cameras, but Mm -hmm. how, um, like what goes on there? And it turns out what goes on there is uh, there's a mixture of images. There's an image of the object that comes through that is an image of the object, but around the edges is an image of the opening in the camera that is inverted so the edges of the so what you get is an image that's a mixture of what the object actually looks like and what the hole in the camera actually looks like. Uh huh. And so the exercise becomes: what do you have to do to subtract out yeah. the hole in the camera to see what the object actually looks like? Interesting. And. It was fascinating. I'd never done it before, and it, the other tutor in there was had actually translated Kepler's optics and was able to lead us through that and he had built an instrument uh, with a 2x12,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, or a 6-inch, 2x6, 12-foot long, mm-hmm. an instrument, and we could actually do it. And it was that fascinating. But something like that, I think, is for me also the question in religious questions about how do you find out something that that you're actually looking at without without the fringe images of the human mind all around it like how do you how do you get the accurate shape of what you're looking at without it being an artifact of the human mind looking at it yeah and worst case is where all you have is the human mind looking at it. And then you're just dealing with psychology at that point, which is not irrelevant and not uninteresting and not unimportant, but it's not, uh, it's not religion. It's, it's a human science. And you think that, um,
2: that's, there's, that's, there's a limit to that. To psychology human science.
0: I do. I think there's a limit to all human sciences in the sense that in human sciences in and in books of human wisdom, we are the measure of things. Right. Whether it's we individually, or we collectively, or we a few inspired geniuses, mm-hmm. uh, whoever that might be, uh, it's human beings that are the measure of reality. And, and the the question that is at the center of religious thinking that cannot be moved away from no matter how hard people try is what is there in the, you always get the word beyond or above or what, what what is there beyond Mm -hmm. our, our wisdom and our insights that, do we have any access to anything beyond ourselves mm-hmm. that is that is true in a way that is important to us and that's not that's not uh, a question that's easily answerable yeah i don't think
2: yeah or if if ever yeah impossible to answer what maybe i mean i think people of faith would say that <clears throat> we as philosophers um, like to ask the question why and and it's a train of whys right and um but you can always maybe ask another why or another why
0: or maybe you should ask the question what rather than why why means what can you say that would satisfy me Uh uh-huh but the what part is what is there ultimately to say and one of the one of the things that comes out of this little presentation i'm going to give on the book of esther is in the book of esther the reason the name of the name of god doesn't appear in the book of esther is because it has gotten to a point um, where we can no longer name the source of these insights that that we can no longer name them means that they don't fit into our language anymore yeah they don't you can't say it's this or that and and this or that has part of the meaning of it has to do with what other meanings are in the language what structure is in the language um, so the reason that name doesn't occur in the book of Esther is because it's no longer possible to say it without saying it in vain, if I could put it that way. And, yeah, and that that's a part of the Jewish tradition that the that uh, you, you simply don't ever say that name.
2: Right, right.
0: Um, <clears throat> it can it, it can be said,
2: and it would be said in vain, me saying meaning that how you a human being trying to. Um, put it into words doesn't do it uh, honor the correct amount of honor or justice or it's even or it's impossible
0: yes that's right it's, it just isn't
2: here's the language and here's the concept that shouldn't really be it's not inside the sphere of language it,
0: it doesn't it's not it doesn't fit into the order of speech
2: yeah makes sense mm-hmm. so we can wrap up um, but when you when you you talked about John 20 right it talks about the resurrection of jesus um you started to become unconvinced that the words that john put down that were i guess jesus's words or maybe john inspired by the holy spirit um were coming from a place that was um other than human
0: no no the opposite i i i was i thought i could see where he got them from. Are you, are you, okay. How what he was doing. do. I I like if I had only had part of the passage maybe I could have written the rest of it. I I I I could see how the passage was made. Okay. By a human being.
2: So okay, therefore you didn't see it as you're not you weren't convinced uh from a, from a divine or religious standpoint.
0: Therefore the passage Became for me not less interesting. I understand, but less ultimately compelling. I understand. It it um, it's still a deeply interesting passage to me, uh, I, and a, an extremely important passage. But it's it's it doesn't finally have, for lack of a better word, that hardness in it. Yeah. Uh. Like water from a stone. There's no stone mm-hmm. that the water's from. It's just water that came from other water. <laughs>
2: I understand. And that's why Judaism for you.
0: As best I can say.
2: Yeah. <laughs> As best that you could put into yeah, words. That, yeah. that would
0: be my self-description.
2: And I mean, And where the self-description ends begins faith
0: yeah that I, begins
2: the voice that you know just or the gut that
0: yeah that I, I don't want to get to the end of my life and have just rattled around my own mind or even better people's better minds than my own mm-hmm. uh it you know, important as that is and and interesting as that is and i'm a you know i'm a big believer in the kind of studies we do at saint john's college but i don't want that to be all that there is
2: it makes sense what's your favorite food ice cream uh, <laughs> i'll tell uh, a quick story yeah, about you the other you, day
0: you have inside information i uh, do in the in the summertime it's ice cream
2: summertime uh, and it's in hot uh, in, in, the, in the
0: wintertime it's hot chocolate okay
2: so, so i do have a sweet different forms of sugar yeah, yeah <laughs> t- different temperatures of sugar yeah, yeah, yeah. depending but, on the weather
0: you know people have these used to keep baby books yeah about here's my here's the first lock of hair yeah <laughs> here's the first word and apparently the story on me was uh my first word was not mama uh-huh. but cookie
2: <laughs>
0: and my mother said she broke out into tears when i said my first word
2: <laughs> and you say you know what mom my stomach is right next to my heart <laughs> <laughs>
0: but uh whether or not that was a heartbreaker, it, yeah. was, it was the case, and in yeah. some sense still is the case, yeah.
2: Yeah, very good. Well, thank you.
0: Thank you very much. For good
2: chat, um, and I wish you the best uh, with all that you do. I hope this is useful for yeah. you. Yeah, it's, if nothing else has been useful for me. Okay. It's been fun, so. Good. Those of Communities, a hyper-local approach to the podcast. Chevy Chase, Bethesda, Kensington. Washington, D.C., a podcast of people who are pillars unto themselves, and because of that, they stand pillars of our community. It begins by being your best self, your best pillar. Then, just like that, magically, whether you know it or not, the community will feel your effect. These people are pillars of community.
1: Be a pillar.